Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. Now, we're going to linger on chapter 3 here a little longer with these horror remakes, and this is something a little bit adjacent to kind of what we were talking about, and kind of tied into a lot to my last episode that I was talking about, and that is the films of Vincent Price. I'm going to be joined by a guest, and we're going to be talking about our top 10 Vincent Price horror or horror-adjacent type films. So, to do this, I am bringing in here Mr. Bill Van Vegel from Land of the Creeps and Phantom Galaxy. Bill, how you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for having me on, and all your listeners, if you're not familiar with me, your host here did a very good job of introducing me. I'm Bill Van Vegel. I've been on Land of the Creeps for, oh, I don't know, four, four and a half years, somewhere in that range. And Phantom Galaxy for the last year and a half with Nathan Bartleball. We're doing really well. And when Trey first approached me and said, Bill, what would you like to talk about? I sat and thought about it because he basically left it as an open blank check. And I thought, you know, I haven't dug into Vincent Price in a while. And he is my all-time favorite horror or genre actor. And we can get into why, but the fact that we can do this kind of episode really excited me to get into some of the movies because we can't get into all of his projects because it's just not fathomable within a two-hour time frame. But this is going to be a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. And Bill, yeah, you're absolutely right. It would take a you know five, six episode <laughs> series to kind of get everything of Vincent Price. But yeah, it was funny. I was recording that same day earlier, and I was just recording that episode where I was talking about House of Wax and the original Fly, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm recording, man, I need to do something Vincent Price, and then I messaged Bill later that day, and what do you come back with but a top 10 Vincent Price episode, so it seemed like it was just in the, it should have been, it was just like in the cards for for the show. It's what they call serendipitous. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and you're right, uh, Vincent Price is a phenomenal actor and one of the most well-known, especially from that early era, I would say. Bill, and we can get into, let's get in, I did a little bit of a background on Price, and we can get into some fun facts here and there. Um, Did you end up looking up anything on Price, Bill? I know you said you were kind of looking into it a little bit. Yeah, to pull the veil back a little bit. I sat on my couch yesterday, and I was doing my Vincent Price research. So I was watching the Raptor game in the background. Oh, they beat the Lakers. LeBron, uh, you guys looked awful. Just put that in there. <laughs> but uh and so i was digging in because i knew somewhat about vince i knew part of his background but i didn't know everything so and, and again i don't know everything i'm no expert or anything this is basically doing a, a search over various sources and seeing what i came up with vincent leonard price was born the 27th of may 1911 and he passed on the 25th of october 1993 he was born in st louis missouri that's Brian Scott territory. Yeah, Brian Scott, if you're listening, and I know you are, hey, hail to Vince. <laughs> I had to look up his IMDb resume. And for those of you wondering, he has 211 acting credits on IMDb. That's so many. I can't even imagine a modern day actor doing that many unless they're like a small character actor or something. Yeah, unless you're like Clint Howard who just needs to pay the bills or something. Yeah, exactly. Or Nick Cage probably by the time he's done. Nick Cage, by the time he's done, no no <laughs> role is too small. Keep on going. Yeah, but sorry, continue, Bill. I was just going to say, I, I think I'll ask you the question. And what was your first exposure 
to Vincent Price, the actor or the personality? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because I had this as a note to talk about at some point. So, Bill, I'm probably I don't know how old you are exactly, but I know I'm a a decent amount, probably younger. I am. I am 47. Yep. And I'm 31. Had to think about it for a minute. So a little bit of gap there. My first exposure to Vincent Price was actually in the TV show, The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo as a voice actor. He played Vincent Van Gogh in that show. Now, looking back, it's not a very good show as far as Scooby-Doo goes, but it's just that iconic voice and that introduction to his look. And that's what kind of got me as a kid. And Vincent Price just feels like one of those characters who had, has always been there more so than any other horror actor just in the periphery. I don't know when I actually first got into his films and the first one would have, I'm pretty sure would have been House on Haunted Hill. I'd have to say if I was watching that, I don't know when it was, but I'm sure I saw it on like Turner classic movies or something one night. But yeah, that was kind of, that's kind of a weird introduction to Vincent Price, but that's how I got into it. Um, What about you, Bill? Well, living in Canada, if those who didn't realize I live outside of Toronto, there used to be a TV show on in the morning meant for kids called the hilarious house of Frank Frankenstein. And it was done by a local TV channel. But they hired Vincent Price to do the intro monologue, and he did a poem that opened up every episode, and it was his face, and he did the, <laughs> he did his laugh. <laughs> and after it, and I'm like, I got to him as, he wasn't exactly spooky. It was a, a kid's educational type show that also had elements of uh, vampires and Frankenstein and down, but it they'd be down in the cave and they'd be talking about wild animals, you know, and they'd be talking about rock and roll stuff. So it wasn't scary, but it kind of had that outlying premise. And so, you know, from a young age, I knew him and I also remember the Scooby-Doo, but I also remember as a kid watching him in an episode of the Brady Bunch. Oh, really? Yeah. He was, a uh, he was in one of those episodes. I think they, they went to, it was one of those ones where they go to Hawaii or something. I can't remember. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. See, I've watched the Brady Bunch, but I have, I, when I was watching as a kid, I never <laughs> probably got to that episode or realized. No. I mean, the advantage of being a kid in the late 70s, early 80s is you got all those mid-70s shows and an ever-ending loop. So I got Brady Bunch. I got Partridge Family. I got Leave it to Beaver. I got all those shows over and over. The other one I found him that wasn't horror was later in life, I would say my late teens, I discovered Columbo. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the TV show Columbo. And he was on an episode where he was like a cosmetics owner and of hand cream, women's hand cream or something. And he commits a murder and Columbo being Columbo somehow just keeps stammering away till he figures that it was him. And so Vincent, you know, he does a lot of horror and then we're going to get into that, but he did like to get his feet into other pots, you know, his hands into other pots. So uh, he was all over the place. Uh, I do remember the Scooby-Doo, but that was a little bit later. That was like late 80s. So I just remember that when because I was really into that and um, any of the kind of Hanna-Barbera and all that stuff as a kid. So I do remember those. I was always a much more fan of the early Scooby-Doo, but I do remember Vincent Price. And what you said, Bill, he was everywhere, right? He not only was on TV, just TV episodes. I mean, think of um, and I'm not sure. Did Columbo air in the 80s? Well, it would have aired on at least up here and probably for you guys. It aired on A&E all the time. OK, I'm trying to think because it seems like he acted pretty much right up into his death. And he was just in everything. He did voice acting with 
the Scooby-Doo and the shows that you were talking about that you did on Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yeah, I mean, I, I was 10 years old when it came out. I was there, you know, I remember flipping on the local channel and having it on and his voice was in, it was very distinctive. You couldn't miss it. And, yeah. and, and he wasn't cheap, but I no. know that <laughs> Michael, Michael Jackson could afford it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but he's just all over. He kind of like transcend and we don't get this a whole lot especially with these you know christopher lee and peter cushing tremendous actors i really like both of them a lot but it's undeniable the amount of fame that vincent price had in just with the mainstream and pop culture and how recognizable vincent price was do you agree with that oh yeah because the thing with vincent price is he dug deep into his role but by all accounts he was the most personable outgoing giving person of the people. He wasn't one of those, yes, he worked on stage, he'd worked in London, he'd worked in the States on the stage, but he really wanted to make things accessible to the average man and woman mm -hmm. and family. Yep. So, you know, he wasn't afraid of going on the Muppet show. Yeah. You know, he wasn't afraid of going on variety shows and talk shows and doing commercials. guest spots, commercials. I mean, I have it written down here. I didn't even realize because I wasn't a, a huge fan of the show. But he played Egghead on Batman in the mid-60s. Yeah, I saw that when I was looking it up, and I didn't even realize that. Because I did watch that show, too, and I wouldn't have even recognized him, I don't think. No, and the reason he did it then was, I guess it was, I don't know, 66, 67. Mm -hmm. He knew he was getting a little bit longer in his career, and he wanted to stay relevant to the current audience. So he wasn't afraid to be a goofball and wear that, that uh, cone-like head. He was the conehead before the coneheads. Right. <laughs> as, as Egghead. And I, I, I watched a YouTube video of what he had to go through for the makeup. And they said, you know, you could take half an hour to slowly take it off. He said, no, no, no. It's like a Band-Aid. Just rip the damn thing off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Bill, I think I'll go into this a little bit in his later in life and his later roles. I mean, later in life, he was suffering from um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and Parkinson's. And he was still out there acting. I mean, his scenes had to be cut down in Edward Scissorhands because he was in such bad shape. But I don't think you'd be able to tell it for his own, you know, his own screen persona. You know, from what I recall, the scenes, he was mostly sitting or he was behind a table or right. behind a desk, what have you. He did walk around when he had the, the clippers in his hands, what have you. But yeah, he gave it right till the end. I mean, he was a lifelong smoker. And by the time I cut up with the lung cancer, there was really not much you could do. No. Especially nope. if he was diagnosed in the mid to late 80s. I mean, technology is not what it is now. You were basically looking at a life sentence. Yes. And yep. Parkinson's, even today, there you know, you can mitigate the uh, repercussions of it, but you can't, the symptoms can be uh, alleviated a little bit, but you can't stop it. No. So he's dealing with breathing difficulties. He's dealing with, Ability to uh, stand and be steady and be able to hold things. But as you said, he gave it like right till the end. And he did a lot of voice work towards the end as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go in, Bill, if you'll let me here. I have yep. a couple of facts about Vincent here. Yep. Or maybe some things that maybe people don't realize that have just focused on his horror offerings. First of all, and we had talked a little bit about this, Bill, is that his he was born into a very wealthy family. Um, it was said, and now I don't know how lucrative this was, but his grandfather invented Dr. Price's baking powder, which 
it said is the first cream of tartar baking powder. Now, I'm not a huge, I don't know a whole lot about baking powder or anything like that, but it said that's where the family got their quote unquote fortune from. Yeah, I had read he had come from a to do family, but I didn't know how he got the to do. Yep. I think that was it. And then his dad, that probably allowed his dad, because his dad was the president of the National Candy Company. So that probably opened up one way or another for his dad to get into that kind of a role. So very interesting that he comes from food. And we had talked about, you know, cooking. He he had put out several cookbooks with his second wife. And I mean, you were saying uh, you had sent me a clip that he was on with Wolfgang Puck, right? Yes. About something about, was it a poached egg or something? Yes, it was something with eggs, I believe. But so he was he was all into that, too. So versatile. And I think I even read he did an audio book as well in the 70s, I think. Yeah, I have written down he was a gourmet chef. He had multiple cookbooks. He had a cooking show on the Thames TV network in England called Cooking Price Wise. And he'd even had a cooking tutorial record. Like, so you would learn how to cook by listening to Vincent Price on the record spinning as you're cooking, I guess. And he was also on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he cooked a poached egg in a dishwasher. Or, sorry, a cooked, or he cooked a poached fish in a dishwasher. <laughs> so, That's can awesome. you imagine? You know, here's this guy. He's <laughs> successful. He's got all kinds of highfalutin friends. No, he's cooking fish in a dishwasher. Yes. So he never forgot that, you know, people are on a budget. People got to do what they got to do, you know? Yep. And to your point, yes, he absolutely seemed like a man of the people, even though he was kind of in those elite social circles and things like that. It didn't really stop him from at least coming off as a very personable guy and just a very likable guy, really. No, and, and to prove that point, or even just to bring it up, he was also really big into art. Yes. He went to, to go do a little bit of biographical study on him. He graduated from Yale University. So yes, he had a bit of money. He could afford Yale. Uh, but he, he walked out of it with an art degree, art and English degree from Yale. And then he later went to London and earned a degree, a master's of fine arts from the University of London. And that's where he kind of got into the theater in London. He kind of kicked around. Yeah, he got his degrees. He was obviously a pretty good student. He was quite studious. But he liked the acting. The acting bug hit him early. I believe when he was at Yale, he was part of, you know, the, um, I wouldn't say a comedy troupe, but, you know, th- those sort of, I think he was part of the magazine, the lampoon, the lampooning kind of deal. So he was big into that. But he was an art connoisseur with a large personal collection. He was a commissioner of the Indian Arts and Crafts Board. In 1957, he and his wife donated over 90 pieces that eventually numbered over 2,000 with money to create the Vincent Price Art Museum at East Los Angeles, which was to be a teaching art collection for students. So he realized in the area that art has to be accessible, and to be accessible, you need to be able to use it. Rembrandt may look nice against a wall, but what good does it do other than to gather dust if it's not used? Right. So he realized that. There's a story I saw. I went back last night on YouTube and watched, uh, remember the old A&E show biography? Yes. Well, they they had one on Vincent Price. And he said at the age of 12, he bought an original Rembrandt etching, I think for $37. And he said he bought it and he paid it $5 at a time until he had paid it off. 
<laughs> which in 1964 or whatever for a 12 year old boy, that's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It meant you couldn't do stuff with your friends either. He was also an art consultant for Sears Roebuck and they sold fine art to the public as part of the Vincent Price collection of fine art. So he made sure that there was firsthand fine art of either stuff that he had donated or had commissioned or artists he had found. Apparently, whenever he was on shoots, he would go to the local swap meets and charity shops and just look around. He couldn't help it. Yeah, he was well cultured all around, right? With the as far as his like background and his education and pretty much all the arts with the, you know, English. And then you've got the fine arts and the acting as well. The theater. They said like when he was a a theater guy back in London, like he came from a good background, but he didn't go with the background of people in the theater. So when he started to hobnob with the people that were in the theater that got him into the film stuff, he was tickled pink because, you know, he might have dealt with businessmen. He might have dealt with academia, but he hadn't dealt with Joan Crawford. Right. You know, <laughs> so I guess there's a story of he went to a party at Joan Crawford's house and his eyes just went buggy because he's like, holy <laughs> cow. You know? I mean, I probably would, too. I mean, that's probably be my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I kind of wanted to go off a little bit. To go along with that, like he was, he wasn't blacklisted, but he was gray listed during the McCarthy era, the whole McCarthyism stuff. And he basically had to make a deal or some kind of statement or sign, sign some kind of form to get back into acting. They were trying to stop his career because he was seen as like this. I don't know if he's just far left or whatever they saw. You know how that was basically a witch hunt anyway. He's so subversive. Yeah, exactly. Well, there there are lots of stories of ordinary people getting involved in or getting caught up in the witch hunt and the blacklisting and the black, whatever it is. So good for him for, you know, still forging ahead. He's definitely a man of passion. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he always pursued his passion. There's a, a story I heard from the, I think his daughter's name is Victoria. Yes. Yep. And Victoria was saying his dad, whenever he wasn't shooting, Apparently, he loved to fish, big fisherman. So he would rent out a boat or what have you, and, and him and his daughter would go fishing. So they would catch the fish. But the advantage of being Vincent Price is not only once you catch the fish, he knew how to fillet it and cook it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, he could do, a, you know, a, a verblanc sauce along with salmon or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so he was, he was a man. I think what we're trying to get at, Bill, is he was just a well-rounded human being. Very well. If you think he's just some sadistic, Satanistic heathen, that is not Vincent Price. No. And and I mean, we can get into the kind of roles that he did before he became who you knew, because he worked in smaller roles in Westerns, crime dramas, film noirs, and he was in the Ten Commandments. Yes. You know, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. So, I mean, I'm sure he was one of the crowd that was chasing him or whatever, you know. <laughs> But uh, yeah. Yeah. And early on, he would play kind of like character actor type roles. I know he was in the film Laura. Yeah. He also played Joseph Smith in the film Brigham Young, which I haven't seen. But knowing the background on that story, that's probably a pretty significant role for his early career, you know, in the late 30s and 40s. I think he really first got into horror with probably he had his part in Tower of London and then he played the titular character in The Invisible Man Returns. 
Yes, and I think that one's public domain now. I think anybody can yes, see it. Yes, it absolutely is. But I, I don't think we would ar- anyone would argue kind of like House of Wax would be his breakout as far as his starring horror roles. Yeah, uh, that that one. But w- there was one that you were mentioning before when we were talking that he was in that kind of made his yeah. turn a little bit. Yeah. Are we speaking about Dragonwick here, Bill? That's it. Yeah. Yep. So Nathan, your buddy Nathan, well, my buddy too. I like Nathan. Nathan's a good guy. But um, Nathan over on Phantom Galaxy was talking to me about, he's like, hey, I watched this Vincent Price film called Dragonwick, and he was kind of playing it up as this gothic thriller. But essentially what we get with Dragonwick is, that's exactly what it is. It's a gothic thriller. Um, let me get a little bit of a synopsis here pulled up, Bill, because I do want to, because I had never heard it. Had you heard of this one before? Not until Nathan had brought it up, but I looked it up and I mean, it gets a 7.0 on IMDb, which you can't always trust IMDb, but for the older movies, they're usually pretty accurate. And so, so to get seven out of 10 is a fairly strong score for a 1946 film. Yeah. So, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase this um, synopsis a little bit, but essentially you have our main, I guess, heroine type character played by Jean Tierney. And she comes from this very poor very religious family, and gets this, you know, they're farmers, and they get this letter in the mail that she has this rich relative who wants her to come and be almost like a governess to to their daughter. So she goes out there, and her cousin is married and all this, and I don't know if they're actually blood-related, Bill, but it's that thing where there's kind of inferred that there's some kind of relationship one way or another. Either way, this thing really kicks off when his wife passes away and we kind of get into the the meat of the story. I would say the first two thirds of this film isn't really a whole lot of thriller, but it definitely does get into that thriller in the later part of the film. But Price does turn into that kind of villain character here, as you were referring to. And it's a good early role showing how he could play the bad guy. And he does play a pretty bad guy. I mean, he treats his wife terribly. He treats Gene Tierney's character terribly. He's just not a good guy. And that's what we'd see from Price for throughout his career. So I would say if you haven't seen Dragonwick, um, I think I was able to see it on YouTube. So it's out there and it's a real fun watch. Maybe not exactly horror, but still. Yeah, Bill, he kind of got into that where he's just playing the villain in most of his films, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he kind of got typecast as the heavy or the one that, you know, has suspicion drawn upon him be it a crime thriller, be it a police serial, be it a horror, be it a murder mystery, what have you. Mm-hmm. He never is, you know, the happy, sexy father. Like that's just not him. No. <laughs> He's always no. that mysterious guy with the top hat, you know, with the beard. He's rubbing his mustache. He's always the guy that's under suspicion. Yeah. And even when he's not out, right like presented up front as the bad guy sometimes he still turns into the bad guy so yeah like there's a couple movies that we'll discuss probably in our top 10 that he's not necessarily the bad guy but depending upon the light that you look at him yes he could always be now before we get into it too deep i just want to let the audience know there is one movie that i had mentioned to trey ahead of time that is not horror at all but being canadian it piqued my interest he did one in 1940 called hudson's bay in which he played King Charles II. And the IMDb synopsis, the first line is, highly fictionalized early history of Canada. 
I know it's on YouTube. I, I just didn't have time to watch it. But I got <laughs> I, I got to sit through Hunter's Bay. And as somebody with a history degree, I want to see how far off this movie is. The other thing I notice in, in a lot of his early films, uh, Gene Tierney seems to pop up. Yes. He seems to have had a good relationship with uh, Miss Tierney. Yeah, I believe she was in Laura, right? I haven't yes. seen Laura, but I, I'm pretty sure she was the the lead in that one. Yes, she was. And I'm sure if you go through it, he's been in, she's been in a couple. But I digress. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely on track there. And I think the last thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know, we were talking a little bit before, is he played in a lot of film noir films as well. Yes, yes. And, and a, a few of them I watched for prep for the episode, which we can talk about afterwards. But Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it just kind of all over. It seemed like he was molding to the times. You know, he did the noir and then he did the westerns, as you were saying. Um, so whatever's big, he's kind of got his footprint in. But I think with the horror... I don't know. It seems like horror was kind of out of vogue at the time when Price was getting big. And I think he did a good job of carrying the torch for American horror movies. Because it was past the Universal Monsters. He kind of got on the tail end of those. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 50s and early 60s, it wasn't necessarily the forefront of horror films. It was more the American sci-fi, you know, Red Danger yep. kind of films were big. Yep, Absolutely. Or the horror was across the pond with the Hammer films. Yes, across the pond. And I did um, a whole section of episodes on that, but you've got horror coming from all over the world at that time. Yeah. And America's just kind of stuck in, like you were saying, this sci-fi horror. But we would have people like Vincent Price and people like Corman come along and kind of forge forward. Yeah, and... you've got you've got Basil Rathbone still around. You've got Peter Laurie coming around. You've got Peter Cushing starting to emerge. You've got all these classic actors that people will recognize today. But honestly, a lot of them had to struggle finding work. Donald Pleasance was making his way through. You know, it, it wasn't exactly like it that's making $120 million or whatever it is in the box office. You're mm -hmm. talking about films that were the B film for a double, a double header set of films when you went to the cinema. Yep. And it was usually the horror schlocky end of it that these ones were first promoted as. But at the end of the day, it was probably more popular film. Yes, absolutely. Bill, before we dive in, do you want to get in? You were mentioning kind of just kind of what um, Vincent Price has meant to you as him being your favorite horror actor and how he's kind of affected your view of the horror genre or anything like that. Well, I mean, when you talk about horror actors, there are certain actors that, you know, jump out, be it Christopher Lee, be it Peter Cushing. There's a lot of them in the in, in the modern you got your Tom Atkins and these kind of people that are distinctive. But to me, you've got Vincent Price. He's one of those people that, he, yeah, you'd love to have him as your uncle. You'd like, love to sit back and have a beer with him and tell stories with him and just kind of be in his presence. But he had a certain cadence. He had a certain way of delivering a line. He had a certain way of building up suspense. There was a lot of bad films that he was in but he didn't give a bad performance. Mm -hmm. He was very much like Bella Lugosi. If you, if you follow Bella Lugosi, another iconic male actor, he was in a lot of schlock. He was in some of those films that, you know, you just didn't have any money in. And he basically had to lead it on his own. For some of these, Vincent Price had to lead it. And he did his best. You could tell that he had stage experience. And he did a lot of films when you get into your Corman films and your AIP films and that. He used 
drama and he used costume and he used setting to kind of build up the film and he worked well with that. And that's what I love. Even as he got older and he got a little bit more gray hair or he got a little bit more gaunt in the face, you still knew it was Vincent Price and you couldn't take your eyes off the man. And that's what I love. A good actor, you don't want to look away from him regardless of, I mean, Lon Chaney had that. Christopher Lee has that. You want to follow them. Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff. You want to figure these guys out. But I think what he had above Bella and Bo- and uh, Karloff and some of those guys is he could act mm-hmm. as opposed to some of them who kind of just did what they had to do to follow the story. And that's why I love. Plus, as I said, I grew up with him in the hilarious house of Frankenstein. So I was never afraid of the man. I knew that he had a sense of humor. Even at his scariest, he still had that cynical laugh. Mm-hmm. It made you go, the guy's got a sense of humor. Yeah, he's not so bad. <laughs> no, he's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. No, Bill, I would like to echo that because I don't know if I've seen a bad Vincent Price performance. I've seen some movies that I would consider not great Vincent Price movies, but I don't think it's ever because of him. He's always seems like he's giving his all. And he does kind of toy around with those comedic films too, right? So it's not all just straight horror. And I love what you said there. That was well said, Bill. Thank you. So let's stop teasing the audience so much. Yep. Let's get in. And let's dive in. So maybe you can set out what the rules were, if there's any kind of structure, what we got going. Yeah, I think all we were really looking at, Bill, were our top 10 horror or, you know, similar like horror thriller type films that Vincent Price was in. No really rules other than that. I mean, I think anything goes, honestly. But Bill, knowing yourself and I, I don't think we'll be having any ties for any positions. No, there's no six-way tie for fourth or something. No. (laughs) (laughs) But um, no, we can. uh, So we can just jump jump into this. I think we'll um, go ahead and we'll start with you, Bill. And if you want to give a synopsis, feel free to do so, like a brief one. If we've already talked about the film, we don't necessarily have to. But yeah, you want to go ahead and start us out with your number 10 Vincent Price film or horror film, at least. Sure. So just to let everybody know, when I started this process, you kind of jot down the ones that jump out immediately. And before you realize it, you've got, I had like 17 films. (laughs) Yeah. So you have to whittle your way down, whittle your way down, whittle your way down. And so I got myself my top 10. I have three or four that were strong contenders to get on here, which we'll talk about afterwards. But my number 10 is one that I never hear talked about by anybody that I think could be remade today and done a very feasible job by a a quality director. And that is 1954's The Mad Magician. And The Mad Magician is one of his early ones. It it was a year after he did House of Wax. And I looked around for a good synopsis. And the one on IMDb is about two paragraphs long, like it's way too long. (laughs) And then the one on Turner Classic is way too short. So I'll go with the way too short. Betrayed by his manager, a master magician uses his skills to seek revenge. So what happens in this one is there's a magician. His name is Gallico, the great Gallico. And Vincent Price plays him. And he is someone who, who works for a bigger magician who does the props and the sets and things. But he decides to go out on his own and put on a show and garner interest from around to see if he could actually make a go of it as his own magician. Cause he believes he can, but those, his manager wants to keep him down or not his manager, his, his upper boss 
the main ma uh, magician wants to keep him down and he wants to keep him being the guy working behind the scenes. And so he puts on this big show and it does well and it starts to garner interest and there's chances and possibilities for future advancement in his career. And then the main magician comes and says, no, 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 no. You've got a contract. You're working for me. You've got to make the sets. You've got to do the props. That's your job. So Price is obviously pretty ticked off there. And he's got an ex-wife in Eva Gabor, as you know, the, one of the Gabor sisters. He's got a girl that he likes to see. And let's just say he takes out his revenge on his magician who's above him and those surrounding him using props from his design in dis devious ways. Let's just say that. So it's kind of a whodunit. There's a scene involving a head and a, a bag that goes missing. That is actually quite funny. But you also get into science. You get into fingerprinting. It's very dramatic. It's cheesy, but it's fun. It's a bit of a police serial. And it's actually, for 1954, it's a fairly dark film. So that's why I think if you got this in the hands of Rob Zombie or something, and not a PG Monsters. You make this a rated R. <laughs> this could be a fun one. Have you seen this one? Bill, I have not even heard of this one. I don't know how this one slipped through, but I was hoping this was happen. I was hoping we would have a couple here and there that either one of us would not have heard of. And I think this one's going to go pretty high up on my watch list. Just the way you're talking about it with it being kind of this whodunit type tale. And that sounds really cool, Bill. Yeah, it's, it's only an hour 12. Okay. And there's a little bit of uh, subterfuge. There's a little bit of, you can see him getting into his makeup and costume. And yeah, it's, it's an easy watch. It's a lot of fun. So check out The Mad Magician if you haven't. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what's your number 10, Mr. Whetstone? Yeah. So this one, I don't think gets a whole lot of love, whether that's deservedly so or not. But... Mine is from 1970. It is directed by Gordon Hessler, and it is Cry of the Banshee. Oh, Cry of the Banshee. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. You know what this one, and I'll set it up a little bit. You know, we're in a period piece here, as many of Price's films are. It's set in 17th century England, and Lord Whitman wages an unending war on what he sees as the never-ending scourge of witchcraft. And many local villagers had suffered at his hands but one victim uses her occult powers to curse his family, enlisting unknowing help from one of the household. What struck me with Cry of the Banshee is, yes, it is another witch hunt type movie. But here we actually get, and I think I've seen this with some other films too, we may actually have some witchcraft going on, Bill. Um, so it may be justified in a, a sense, but Price is still this repulsive kind of aggressor on these this coven of witches that live in the area. And we see just from the opening scene how he treats people. And he kind of pushes a little too far at one point and kind of sends someone on the path of revenge. So it's a very cool movie. The ending is one of my favorite parts of this film. It is so well done. Um, and I just really like the whole ending sequence about the last 10 minutes of this movie or so. But Price just is this despicable character. Him and his family drive his wife 
into this terrible state and they treat his daughter poorly. And we just see what happens when you've pushed people too far and you kind of get your comeuppance. So I really like Cry of the Banshee as one of those period piece films um, about witch find or witch hunters and witchcraft. So, yeah, it sounds good. And, you know, it's obviously close to another one that we'll probably talk about later. But yes, I do like that era of about 1968 to 1974 of Vincent Price. He, you know, he knows he's not the young teen heartthrob or anything. Not that he ever was, but no, (laughs) but he knows kind of his lot in life. And he kind of chooses and picks his roles based on the interesting part of the character. And I have seen this one, but as I said, it's been many a year since I've seen this one. So I would probably have to revisit it. But again, anything that of that time period, it's worth a watch. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And I, I'm the same with you, Bill. It's been years since I've seen some of these. So I did go back and I rewatched or watched for the first time, probably about nine out of 10 of my top 10. There's one in there that I didn't really want to rewatch again because of maybe the content of it, but we'll leave that for later. But hopefully I'm familiar enough where I'm able to talk about these. So yeah, just to let everybody know, it's funny. The banter train I've had back and forth, they said, because of all my other various commitments, I didn't get to all of these. I'm going to have to go on your back for some of these, Trey. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. No, I'll try my best, Bill, but let's go. Uh, you want to get into your number nine then? My number nine is one that I actually did watch yesterday, and it's it's one that I have liked for years. And again, it's in a subgenre that he didn't mind poking his toe into, and this is comedic horror. And my favorite pre-1980 comedy horror is the Comedy of Terrors from 1963. Now, when you look at the comedy of terrors, you you know, that could be anything. But just listen to the first three or four people mentioned. Vincent Price, Peter Lorre, Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone. Basically, he said, let's get the boys together and let's make a movie. I mean, he had done one a couple, a couple years later called The Raven, uh, where a lot of these guys got back together. But this one, I always thought it's fun. It's tongue in cheek. And it's an enjoyable watch. Not overly scary. This is one you could watch with someone who's just getting into horror. Or you want to watch with your seven-year-old who's kind of just dipping their toe in, but it doesn't want to jump all the way into the lake. Dishonest Undertaker Waldo Trumbull and his sidekick Felix Gilly are creating their own customers when they cannot find willing ones. Vincent Price is a drunk, but he also owns the local crematorium uh, where you deal with all the dead bodies. And business is slow. He's a year behind in the rent. He's not able to get the bodies in to pay the rent. Peter Lorre is his henchman. He's a former robber who's kind of basically taking this job because nobody else will hire him because he doesn't have the resume, obviously, being a convict to be able to do anything else. And they decide, because they're a year behind in the rent, they have to go out and kill people in the, in the neighborhood to <laughs> get themselves some business. And Basil Rathbone is the man that owns the property that they rent from. And he says, you know, you've got basically two days to pay me a year's worth of rent or I'm booting you out. So <laughs> uh, Peter Laurie and, and Vincent Price are over the top silly. Boris Karloff, you could tell Boris Karloff towards the end. He couldn't walk very well. Like his health wasn't mm-hmm. great. But so he was basically sitting but he kind of plays this feeble uh, older guy that 
needs medicine to keep himself alive. Joyce Jameson plays a woman in the house who's, uh, I wouldn't say a floozy or anything, but, but she's there to be look, to look pretty, but she's also there for her comedy. And eventually they get to Basil Rathbone and they try to break into his house to kill him. And let's just say he's like the energy energizer bunny that just doesn't die. It's absolutely hilarious. One of my favorites, you know, when you talk about horror comedies, you talk about Shaun of the Dead, you talk about Tucker and Dale versus evil. You talk about the evil dead. This one never gets mentioned. And the comedy of terrors I find Vincent Price is just so over the top as this drunk who owns the local funeral home. That is just hilarious. So I suggest, have you seen this one, Trey? Bill, I'm kicking myself because this fell into like one of the three that I did not get to. I really wanted to see this one because it was directed by Jock Turner, who did Cat People. Okay. But I just kind of ran out of time. I figured I need to rewatch some of these other ones that are on my list that I haven't seen in a long time so I could talk to them. And I kind of ran out of time. But that sounds like even more than I was expecting. Like, I'm, I'm really interested given your review there. And it was written by Richard Matheson. Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah. you know, you know, it's got a little bit of, <laughs> I mean, Richard Matheson did the I am legend thing, but he also did a lot of episodes of uh, twilight zone. Like he was in and out of that genre, but yeah. you could tell he was having some fun with this one. And as I say, Boris Karloff, you could tell was, I mean, I don't think he had a scene where he stood. I think every scene he was sitting in a chair or hunched over or something, but he has some one liners and you could tell Peter Laurie, Peter Laurie at his, you know, he has got like, kind of like those, um, wandering eyes and he's got the facial expressions and he's short and yeah and basil rathbone you know he's just like he's just the straight man (laughs) (laughs) you know what bill i'm going to sometime this week i'm going to watch that one and i'm going to put a review up on the facebook group because i owe it i think to watch that one that one just sounds like a lot of fun and i think it's on youtube i'm pretty sure i found it on youtube okay yes awesome Alrighty. so what's your number nine trey so my number nine is a one of uh, Vincent Price's sci-fi films from 1959, The Tingler. Ooh, The Tingler. Yeah, directed by William Castle. Now, this one, and there's probably a couple on my list that are just kind of campy, fun films. They're not necessarily these high prestigious pictures, but I don't care. I mean, I, I really enjoy The Tingler. Let me set it up a little bit with this synopsis. After much hard work, a pathologist discovers and captures a creature that lives in every vertebrae and grows when fear grips its host. Scream for your lives. So, being a William Castle film, there are a couple of gimmicks with <laughs> with this one. The first is that Percepto, which is kind of one of the famous gi- gimmicks, and he had all these, William Castle, if you know anything about him, had all these names for his tricks and everything he put up. But basically, they installed uh, motors underneath certain seats in theaters, And at a key time in the film, these motors would go off and terrify people in the audience. And they urge you in the film to scream for your life because that's what stops these things. You know, screams stop it dead. So how do you get screams and reactions in a theater? Well, you put it in the movie and tell people that's how you get rid of the thing. But this is just a fun, campy sci-fi romp. I think it's something that's, that's kind of a little unique. I don't think I've seen anything quite to this level or quite to in this same vein. And they really kind of break the wall in that movie theater scene near the end, you know, where the lights go dark on the screen. And I'm not going to say much more about it because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who may not have seen it. But it does a good job of playing with the audience. And 
maybe you're just saying it's a whole marketing, <laughs> the whole film's a marketing ploy, but I think Price does a good job here. I think the other characters play good roles here. And yeah, I just really like The Tangler a lot. Yeah, that's one that I didn't get to rewatch, but I've seen before. And it is, I agree. Anything with William Castle, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be over the top. You know, it's going to be silly. And his films vary in quality. Yes. Uh, this one is fun. I remember the scene where, was it Vincent Price or there was a female that was laying on the couch and this thing is crawling up its chest? Oh, that's Vincent Price. Yeah. Vincent Price, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's a good scene. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it looks it looks so out of place and it looks so ridiculous. But oh. it's, a... <laughs> it's, it's like, really? I mean, it's just a rubber thing yeah. around. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, that's the funniest thing. And uh, But there's a pretty cool um, kind of like, scaring scene that happens about midway through the movie that causes one of the characters to, you know, kind of meet an untimely end. And that's a pretty cool <laughs> little sequence there. Yeah. As I said, and, it's probably been, I don't know if this one, is this one public domain? I think I watched it on Tubi bill, so okay. I'm not sure, but I know it was on Tubi. It's one of those ones that when you get the five for $7, the, yes. they almost always have the tingler. Yeah. And about that scene I was mentioning, it's funny, the film's in black and white, but in that scene, there's a couple of instances of red blood on the screen against the black and white, which is really striking. But oh, that, that, that was half of uh, Castle's budget. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just... <laughs> but anyway, uh, Bill, what's your number eight? My number eight. Now, the, the first couple that we've talked about on both sides are kind of fun, laid back, easygoing, you know. This one's going to take it in a bit of a darker turn. And this is one that we kind of hinted at before. And this is one I literally just finished watching because I hadn't seen it for a couple of years. And that is 1968's Witchfinder General, a.k.a. The Conqueror Worm from 1968. The IMDb synopsis is a young soldier seeks to put an end to the evils caused by a vicious witch hunter when the latter terrorizes his fiance and kills her uncle. So we've got... Vincent Price as, I'm just trying to find the name of his character. Matthew Hopkins, right? Matthew Hopkins, that's it. Matthew Matthew Hopkins, we're dealing with the English Civil War here. So you have people on Cromwell, Cromwell's side. You have people that are loyalists to the king. And Vincent Price kind of rides the middle and just is going out under the auspices of, I'm doing God's work. And I want to rid the world of evil and Satan and get rid of all the witches. So he, he basically wanders with his small band of men, basically one other guy and a couple henchmen. And they go from town to town, to village to village, especially on the eastern part of England. And he finds people that have been accused of witchery, have been accused of praying to Satan. And that's the ill of their town. And he goes around and it's almost like the Crusades. He finds mainly women but it can be men as well, uh, like priests or what have you, and takes them. And if they're accused, he gives them a, you know, a quasi ability to respond. And if he doesn't like their answer, he goes through various tortures to see if they've purified, if they're pure or if they've been under the influence of evil. And he does that in all these different villages. And he does it in this one town where there's a particular priest or minister and his niece that he's taken in. And she ends up having to sleep with Vincent Price to appease him. But Vincent Price ends up killing 
the uh, father or the uncle and the 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 girl that he's taken in her husband to be her fiance comes back to avenge the death of the minister and it's a historical drama really that's really dark mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't have a lot of blood there's some violence there's a, a scene with people being hung over a bridge and there's a scene towards the end that's absolutely breathtaking where a woman is burned. But it's I like this because Vincent Price is here is at his best in terms of he's in a historical piece. He's able to be understated yet important. And he's able to demonstrate the hugeness that he has as a figure on the screen. And I like the fact that things. this is a film that doesn't end in a nice little tied bow in a nice way. And so I like that element to it. Like, it's not, you know, guy gets girl, kissy, kissy, end of movie, fade to black. <laughs> that's not this film. No. And that's what I like about this. I like the period pieces. Like, there's lots of women in, you know, bosomy type of shirts and that kind of deal. But there's also lots of sword fights. There's also lots of knife fights. There's also lots of doing things in the name of God and the game of uh, the name of moral virtue. I really, I really like this film. I don't know what you think of it. Yeah, well... Bill, funny enough, that is my number eight. Well, there you and go. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but it seems to happen. Every top ten show has a has overlap somewhere. But you know what? The only reason I think this might be a better movie, I think it certainly is a better movie than some of the films I have above it. But it's just so hard for me to watch that it it kind of pushes it down a little bit. I think it's a great film. I think everything you said was just on point with this one. It's just sometimes a little bit soul crushing and sometimes a little bit too much. But I think with the topic, you kind of need that. You kind of need to feel the reality of what was going on. And Price is probably probably his most villainous role, really. This is probably his most evil role. And he doesn't even see himself as evil in the film. So unlike he would in some other films. If we're talking witch finders... I don't know if you've seen it, Bill, but I prefer a little bit The Mark of the Devil over this one. But honestly, Witchfinder General is such a good film, and it's a historical film. I mean, this stuff was based on true events, so you could only imagine like <laughs> how gruesome and awful it was, right? And, and the irony is, it's a beautifully shot film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the cinematography is really good. You get to see the British outdoors. But ironically, this is peak of horror that Vincent Price wasn't a fan of. He wasn't a fan of the bloody film. He didn't like the way that horror was going in the late 60s because you had your American horrors that were starting to turn and the British hammer were starting to turn. And I think he did this because of the quality of the film, but I don't think he was especially fond of some of the actions in the film. No, and I can see that, but this is, I mean, this is pretty, I don't know how, I don't know what your experience is with the uh, horror community on this one, Bill. But this is up there. I think it's pretty well known in England because it's part of that big folk horror yep. uh, movement that they had with Wicker Man and the Blood on Satan's Claw and all that stuff that was going on. Robin Redbreast around this time. Yeah, you, you should have on Hugh Lloyd. Hugh Lloyd is a big fan of that. I mean, he's he's in Wales, so he's part of that culture. But And I know Nathan got the uh, box set that came out recently. Yeah, I've, I'm going to get to folk horror at some point because it does really fascinate me, but that's what this is. This is one of those big folk horror films. I tell you what, that ending though, Bill, is just haunting, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it, it's right up there with Wicker Man with with fire. Yeah, it is. Oh, 
it had been a while since I'd seen it. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I remember that scene. Yep, yep. It's where nobody wins, really. Nobody wins in this movie, but no, but it's no, okay. No. As I said, it's not one of those kissy kissy guy gets girl walks away end of you know. No. This is not one of those films. No, absolutely not. But all right, Bill, is that all you got on Witchfinder General? Witchfinder General. That's all I got. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to your number seven then. My number seven is based on a Richard Matheson book, I Am Legend, called The Last Man on Earth. When a disease turns all of humanity into the living dead, the last man on Earth becomes a reluctant vampire hunter. Now, if you've seen Night of the Living Dead with George Romero, a lot of people think that's the one that kind of brought the zombie genre to a forefront. And I'm not taking anything away from Romero. Romero's brilliant. That's in my top 10 all-time films. It might even be in my top five all-time films. But if you watch The Last Man on Earth, you can see where Romero might have had an influence Mm -hmm. based on after having watched this. And ironically, both of these films are in public domain. The Last Man on Earth is Vincent Price plays a scientist who is literally Dr. Robert Morgan the last man after an apocalyptic event to survive. And he's got this small house on the edge of town and he has to go out and find the food. He has to deal with what are considered, I guess they're quasi zombie slash vampires. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a weird combination. Yep. And the other thing you'll notice if you watch this film is they, they talk, they, they have a bit of functionality that later zombies won't have. It's at least the slow walking zombies, but there, he has to kill them by stabbing them through the chest, through the heart with a stake. And so he's got his board, his clapboard all over around his house. He's all boarded up and he tries to have a, a meaningful existence within. And it's funny on the wall, he has marked off the calendar, how many days is in like, he's trying to keep track. That it's like October of six. I think they say it's 1968 which I think is about the same time, ironically, that Land, uh, Night of the Living Dead came out. So there's a little bit of irony there. But it's it's a good film. It's it's dark. I mean, the Omega Man would come out later, uh, and uh, the Will Smith I Am Legend came out later. This is my usual go-to. And it's not ultra long. It's probably like an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. An hour 26. An hour 26. So is it exactly his best performance? Probably not. But as a film, is it fun? You bet your bottom dollar it is. <laughs> yeah, Bill. So this one just missed my list. But you're right. And a couple things I wanted to say, first of all, is that I think that I Am Legend, the novel, was noted as an influence for Night of the Living Dead. So you're not off there. And it's like you were saying, yeah, we've seen this several times with the Omega Man and I Am Legend by Will Smith or with Will Smith. But here, it's like these creatures are so kind of unsettling because they're yelling his name as he's trying to get back into his house. They're, they're banging on his car. Yeah. They're trying to get in the door. <laughs> he's got yeah. garlic hanging around and all these crosses. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very unsettling. And I think it really picks up when a female character enters the picture. I don't know if you agree or not. Yeah, I think the creatures in this movie are just very unsettling. I think the whole the whole movie price really carries it well because it's kind of a one man show for a lot of it. Pretty much. 
I like the scenes where he has to dispose of the bodies at the dump and he just drops them off. Oh yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah, and the flashbacks of that where they're showing that at the beginning. Yeah. Is just yeah. It's really cool. And yeah, I like kind of how they like let you live in this world a little bit and then they flash back and kind of show you what happened. The only thing I don't like is on the poster. They show like a, a gothic haunted house in the background. His, his house is like a thousand square foot house on the corner. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like that one a lot. That's a good pick. So what do you got there, Trey? Okay, for number seven, this is another one that might not be as well regarded, but I liked it a whole lot. And that is from 1969, the Oblong Box. Oh, the Oblong Box. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I have I have a couple. uh, That's my second Gordon Hessler directed film on this movie or film on this list, if I can talk there. But um, let's set up the Oblong Box here. Aristocrat Julian Markham keeps his disfigured brother, Sir Edward, locked in a tower of his house. Occasionally, Sir Edward escapes and causes havoc around the town. So what I like about the oblong box is one is the way Sir Edward looks and he has this red kind of hood pulled up over his face. And I'll also add that Christopher Lee is in this film in a kind of smaller role. But I like that he has that look and he's kind of got that look of, you know, the town that sudden dreaded sundown or torso or something along those lines. Think that, but with a red hood to kind of hide his disfigured face. But what I really like is that Price doesn't necessarily play a straightforward villain in this movie. Now, he's certainly done some bad things, sure, that we learn about later, but he's not played as a straight-ahead villain. And I like the establishing that this goes back to, like, what they did over in Africa, and we see an opening scene with something where his brother gets disfigured in that opening scene by these people in Africa. And I don't know. I just like how the whole movie is it one of his strongest movies? Maybe not. But I just like all the elements of this hooded figure going around and kind of taking his vengeance for a plan gone wrong. And I like Price's character here. So, Bill, I know you said it had been a while since you've seen this, probably. It's been a while, but I do remember it. And it's pretty good. I've seen it a couple of times. Never look to see what's in the attic. Just just don't look. <laughs> yeah, don't look don't what's look. up there. In any movie, just don't look in the attic. Like, seriously, like Black I mean, Christmas, whatever you want to talk about. This is one of the last, I don't know if it is the last, but it's one of the last of the Edgar Allan Poe films mm-hmm. that he did, that Price did. And yeah, yeah. It, it is towards the end, but it, it's a good story. Mm-hmm. Again, this is another one of those that you could redo with a new set of eyes. And it could be done actually pretty well. You know, this mysterious killer coming up. But he's not a mysterious killer like... Michael Myers. No. He's not like Jason. He's, I hasten to say, human, human-like. human mm-hmm. He's got a human piece to him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, the Oblong Box is, yeah, if you haven't seen the Oblong Box, I just didn't get time to redo it. But, yeah, Christopher Lee's in a smaller role in this one. But And uh, Hillary Heath, who was in uh, Witchfinder General, is also in this. Oh, really? I didn't even make that connection. And, and Peter Arn. Peter Arn was in a lot of films in that time frame. And Rupert Davies, who was in Witchfinder Generals in this. See, and that's the, Bill, when I was talking earlier, Witchfinder General was the one I did not rewatch because I've got it pretty much ingrained in my brain. So if yeah. I would have watched that, I probably would have made the connections more of these actors. Yeah. I was going to say the beauty of some of these ones that are British produced is 
I always say they do the casting call of the local British acting guild and they, and they, and they bring them all out because there's usually about between 10 to 15 of these British wonderful character actors that come out for a lot of these films. And this is no, no different. They all come out. So yeah, good one. So my number six is one that I debated. I had an, uh, a discourse in my brain going back and forth on this one. Is it a price film? Is it strong enough? I know I've told other people this isn't a, a price led film, but the film is so strong. I need to, I had it up higher. I knocked it down. I took it off. I brought it back. I stuck it at number six and that's 1958's The Fly. And I put The Fly where it was because this is not a Vincent Price led film. Vincent Price plays a secondary character. And before I jump right into it for the audience, if you're not familiar with The Fly, it's about a scientist who has a horrific accident when he tries to use his newly invented teleportation device. He's basically a scientist who is played by David Hedison as Andre Delambre, who's a scientist who's trying to, he's kind of ahead of his time. He's trying to bypass some of technology that we take for granted now and to be able to get from spot X to spot Y. So he does an experiment where he has a bottle of uh, champagne and he puts it into one device and then he presses the buttons and then it shows up on the other side. So he's thinking he's kind of creating this, I wouldn't say time travel, more of a, it does it things quicker, more efficient. But as it turns out, when he does one of these experiments on one side, a fly gets in. Now, if you've seen David Cronenberg's 1986, The Fly, which is a pretty good modern interpretation of this, this is basically the OG of that. In this one, Vincent Price plays Hedison's brother, Francois Delambre. And it's kind of implied that he has a bit of the hots for the wife. Mm -hmm. And it's basically Hedison, when he turns and he does it with the fly in it, he gets the fly head and he gets the fly arm. And he's still got the brain for the most part of him, but he can't be seen. So he wears basically a bag over his head until he can find the fly that has his human head to be able to put back in to switch back and forth. And if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give away what happens. But Vincent Price does a lot of um, coming in and out of scenes and kind of furthers the plot along. So it hence, hence it was my dilemma of whether to have it on the list or how high to have it on the list. It's a classic of the sci-fi horror genre. And I think that everybody needs to see it. It's probably been on your public access TV for years, but if you haven't, take a look. I don't know what you thought about this one, Trey. Yeah, so I just talked about this a little bit in the um, in my most recent episode, Bill, and I, for some reason, the flies never really hit with me. I have seen it. Um, it's been several years since I've seen it, and I've only watched it once. So maybe if on rewatch, it'll connect better. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a solid movie. It's just one of those that has never really connected, but I agree with you in it being kind of this classic. It's one of those classics from the fifties. It's one of those that you have to talk about in the fifties. If you're talking about the science fiction films of the fifties, I think it's up there. Yeah. I and mean, I think just for its importance in terms of what it did in the genre, 
I think it needs to be mm-hmm. watched. It, you know, like you're not going to get any Oscar winning performances or anything from this. No, but but for those of you that have seen the Cronenberg film but haven't seen this one, you need to go back and watch this. Yeah, I agree, and I always will champion going back and watching the originals if you haven't seen them because um, I think it's worth it, even if you don't come away loving the film like I did. It's definitely worth it. Gotcha. So what's next on the piper there, Trey? Yeah. So my number six, and you had this dilemma at your number six, and I had this dilemma with my number six as well. So my number six is an anthology film from 1987, so very late in Price's career. And it is From a Whisper to a Scream, or also known as The Offspring, I believe. Yeah, I haven't seen this one. I've been meaning to watch it forever. I think it's on Tubi. I'm trying to think of where I saw it. I think I saw it on YouTube, maybe. I don't know. Maybe YouTube, yeah. I know know that on one of the LOTC, one of the other guys did it, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, and I think the guys over at Retro Movie Geek did it as well a couple years ago. So, yeah, it's been on my list. The thing is, is that Price plays, he's the wraparound story. So, we see at the beginning of this film is um, an execution. A woman getting executed in... That was Price's daughter. And Price has someone come to his house and he's telling her the story of the evil in this town, the small town that they live in, and what kind of, just the history of it. And we're kind of going off on four different stories here, which usually for anthologies, we usually get three um, for most traditional anthologies. So it's cool having four. I didn't feel like any of them were incomplete because of that. The first one is, I think, where you get that alternate name of The Offspring, because it's about a guy who (laughs) murders someone, and I'm not going to get into it a whole lot, but there might be some consequences that go along with what he did. He's kind of infatuated and obsessed with someone, and it leads him down a bad road. That's a very unsettling one. The second story picks up from this guy who is running from some people he had cheated, and a man kind of swoops him up and saves him, Um, in this shack that he lives in, and he's talking to him about voodoo practices and things like that. The third one follows a carnival glass eater and follows his little story and how this carnival came to be. And that's my favorite. That's a very strong one. And the final one goes back to the roots of where this evil took place. And that's kind of the Civil War set thing. And that's a very, very dirty, very, very unsettling story there and it doesn't pull any punches bill i think you'll like that it's not ultra gory or anything like that but i think these stories are pretty pretty severe in their themes and violence and i really liked them i liked three out of the four stories i didn't care for the second one as much but i think the way the second one ended was good it's hard to talk about these anthology ones because you don't want to give away too much of the stories but i think this is definitely up there as far as the anthology films that Price has done. Um, in fact, I think it's probably the only anthology of his I have on my list. Because he did get into a lot of anthologies there. But anyway, Bill, anything to say on this one? No, other than it has been on my radar for a while. I just, again, so much so much, so much to do, so little time. Yeah, I, I will. I will get to it. And because I am a big fan of anthologies, and the, the thing with anthology films is normally the wraparound is the weakest end of it. Yes, and it is here, unfortunately. But the fact that Vincent Price is part of the wraparound means, you know, it's probably got at least enough interest to keep it together. Yeah, it's interesting. I just don't know if I, 
I, <laughs> Price does a really good job, is what I will say. But I think he's at that point that we talked about earlier where he's sitting behind a desk the whole time. He can't really do a whole lot more at that point. So he is just basically retelling these stories to this woman. But, I mean, I would watch Vincent Price read the phone book, so that's fine with me. And the other thing I think is, if I remember going through his anthologies, or anthologies, his uh, credits, it's one of his last quote-unquote horror films. Yeah, yep. So it's uh, worth watching just for that. Yeah, at 87, it was pushing it there. I mean, yeah, but... All right, Bill, that's all I got for that one. What's your number five? Uh, so <laughs> number five is one that I've watched forever. It, it might have been the first one of his that I watched. And this is 1953's The House of Wax. Ah. And The House of Wax is an absolute classic. No, this isn't the one from 2000-whatever-it-was. Five, I think, yeah. 2005, which, which actually isn't a terrible film. But this one is, I think, superior. The synopsis is, an associate burns down a wax museum with the owner inside, but he survives only to become vengeful and murderous. <laughs> so basically what happens is Vincent Price plays Professor Henry Jared, and he's a master waxman. He builds and creates these wax creatures and creations and lifelike statuettes, and they have them inside a museum, but he has a partner. And his partner, they've been doing this for a while, and it's just not making him enough money. And he figures it's easier to burn it down, get the insurance money, than it is to keep plowing away with this business. Despite Vincent Price being very desirable, or he wants to keep the museum going, the partner doesn't. So he burns it down. And there's a very graphic scene. A graphic is uh, a bit harsh. A, a very vivid scene of all these wax museums, the, the wax people melting. And it's very unsettling. I can imagine for 1953, wow, this is the stuff of, this is Indiana Jones 40 years before Indiana Jones. You know, so it was pretty cool. And oh, maybe 30 years, 30 years ahead. And so everybody assumes that Vincent Price had died in the fire, but it turns out he didn't. And he survives. And the other graphic and vivid part of that scene is this for 1953 was in color. So to see all the melting and the oozing and the, anybody here who's watched candles melt and then, wow, it's, it's awesome. And let's just say he starts up his own museum per se. And he wants to do a Marie Antoinette figure. Well, he finds a way to make it as lifelike as possible. <laughs> That's all I'll leave it at that. It's a fun movie. And for 1953, it was made as a 3D movie. And you can tell that they were kind of experimenting with it because there's one scene where there's somebody outside of a theater and he's, I, I think he's, he's got like a... It's a ping pong it? paddle. Ping pong, yeah, ping pong paddle. And he's paddling the thing back and forth. And you know it's coming right in. That's the only reason why he's doing it. Yeah. But... It's a fun little movie. Again, it's kind of like The Fly in terms of if you like sci-fi, if you like horror, if you like Vincent Price, if you like early 3D films, this is a must watch. I like this one a little bit more than The Fly. And I think this one has a little bit more grit to it on the horror side. So yeah, check this one out. Bill, I will talk about this one a little later, but I will say a couple things is first, um, something I found out the director of this film was blind in one eye. So he couldn't even see the 3D effects. Oh, really? 
Yeah, and Price thought that was an interesting choice. He thought he was a fantastic director, but a lot of people thought that because of that, he focused more on making it a good movie and not as much on the 3D effects. Gotcha. I was just going to say, the other part of it is, in smaller roles is Carolyn Jones, who you'll know from The Addams Family, and a small role by Charles Bronson in this film, which which is before he got into all the films he's known for before the great escape and such well before the great escape. So yes, uh, he was kind of just like a minor guy on this one. So yeah, no, that's cool. But yeah, like I said, talk about that one a little later. All right. So what do you got for number five? For my number five, I have one from 1959. It seems like I have a lot. Bryce did a lot in 1959. He was busy. Um, But this one is the bat directed by crane Wilbur. The Bat. Again, I think that's a public domain film now. To be honest. Yeah, I, I think, I can't remember. I think I watched that on Prime Video, so I think it's probably one of those ones they just scooped up from public domain. And to set this one up, mystery writer Cornelia Van Gorder has rented a country house called The Oaks, which not long ago was the scene of some murders committed by a strange and violent criminal known as The Bat. Meanwhile, the house's owner, bank president John Fleming, has recently embezzled $1 million in securities and has hidden the proceeds in the house, but is killed before he can retrieve it. And that might sound like a spoiler, but all that happens within the first like 10 or 15 minutes of the film. So it's not really. This is essentially, and it's we've got in our female lead in this film, and this is kind of like an ensemble movie. You kind of get different looks from the different characters' perspectives. And our lead female role in this She is like a mystery thriller writer. And I think that's what this film essentially is. It's much more mystery thriller crime film than it is a straight ahead horror film. But I love the design of the bat. And he does kind of have these serial killer tendencies, even though if that's not what it turns out to be, um, may or may not. But he's got these cool claw, like very long fingernail claws type things. And he sets a bat in when he's going into this house and it's really fun trying to figure out, you know, it's that who done it, who did this and why they did it and how they did it and all that stuff behind it. So you have that kind of serial killer as the front guys. And behind that is a good mystery thriller film. Yeah. I was going to say the way that it's kind of marketed, it almost looked like a castle film. So I had to look up to see if it was, but it's not, it's crane Wilbur. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of uh, like I said, it's got a really good cast. The um, detective has some good back and forth with Price, some good Woody banter a couple of times. So whenever they're on screen together, it's very good. But I really like the bat. If you haven't checked out the bat, maybe one of his lesser watched films from the 50s of his 50s classics. I don't know if I'd call this one classic, but I really like it a lot. So, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I do know that Agnes Moorhead was in it. And if you've seen Bewitched, you know who Agnes Moorhead is. Mm -hmm. Yes, she plays the mystery writer. So um, she's kind of like the main female lead in this. But so, yeah, I'm going to have to refresh myself because it's probably been probably been 20 years. Yeah. You know what, Bill? I rewatched that when I finished it about 1230. Oh, did you? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, while I was finishing up Witchfinder General, you were watching that. Yeah, exactly. That's the one I squeezed in this morning. So, (laughs) Alrighty. So my number four is one of my all-time faves in terms of this particular genre. 
And it was actually the poster was the background screen for my computer for a long time. I thought it was so cool. Vincent Price is known for certain particular roles and types of films that he does. This is my favorite of the Poe films. He hooked up with Roger Corman at AIP because Price had already done American International Pictures films. They got on really well. They had the same kind of sensibilities. And I think Corman liked the fact that that Price could stretch a dollar and work with whatever he's got. And my favorite of them all is The Mask of the Red Death. I absolutely love this film. And it's so colorful. Like, it's 1964. Brilliant colors for this. Technicolor had to have been used at its max. I bet you Corman spent half his budget just getting the best film and the best costumes possible for this. This is Price at his acting peak being a, a very strong character actor. The background to it is, the IMDb is very simple. A European prince terrorizes the local peasantry while using his castle as a refuge against the Red Death, the plague that stakes the land, or that stalks the land. So you've got the, the Black Death, or sorry, the Red Death, the Red Death plague that's around this castle and people are trying to get in because they know that it's safe inside and he's not letting anybody in. He's obviously a little bit off kilter. He has, there's one really memorable dinner scene where he has people dancing. What really stands about this film are two things. One, the presence that Price has as the character. And two is the colors that are used. He's Prince Prospero. He's an egomaniac. He's misogynistic. He's a dictator. He does what he does. He takes two men and one woman back to his castle after witnessing a woman die of the Red Death. So he lets a couple of them come in. And they realize what's in here. And let's just say things go bat crap crazy. But I'm purposely leaving it vague because I want you to discover this. Imagine like a court, unlike a court of the king, unlike you've ever seen before. But in brilliant costumes, with, with music, and with a set design, and as Prince Prospero just going off the deep end. But you get sucked into watching. I mean, one of the things that he says is, why should you be afraid of dying? Your soul has been dead for a long time. <laughs> it, it, just, it just makes me laugh. The ending is a WTF moment. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the film, you're like, what have I just watched? I immediately want to watch it again. And one of the co-stars is Hazel Court. And Hazel Court is in quite a few of Price's films. And they get on brilliantly. The magic is there. I can't, you know, it's similar in a sense to Suspiria. It's high on art and visuals. Either you love that or you hate that. I personally think Suspiria is overrated. I'll take this every day of the week. My number four. What did you think of it, Trey? So, uh, Bill, my number four is The Mask of Red Death. Oh, there you and, go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you're saying that about Suspiria because that was just about what I was going to say first when they're in those rooms. And I'm not going to... I think you said it best is you've got to come into this blind, as blind as possible, I think, because it makes for a better experience. Yep. But these there's a series of rooms and the lighting in that last room and some of the visuals we see along with it. 
they're just so great. And I don't even know what to say. I think this film is just so visually stunning and the themes behind it are so great. And I think this is actually, you talk about the costumes. I think this is probably one of some of the most toned down costumes in the Poe Corman type films, but it doesn't suffer for it. I think I really love most of the aspects of this movie. I don't want to say two more, just like you, I don't want to get into it, but just the use of color and the figures that we see later on in the film. Uh, yeah, Bill, I love this one. <laughs> Beauty. Yeah. And again, it's got a cast. Hazel Quartz in it. Yep. Jane Asher is in it. Uh, Nigel Green is in this. Robert Brown. Like a lot of these, Patrick McGee. Like you've got guys in here that have are veteran British stage and screen actors. No role is too small and they give it their all. Yeah. And I, that dynamic between um, Hazel Court and Jane Asher and Vincent Price is a pretty good one too. <laughs> I'll say. And let's just say Hazel Court doesn't hurt the eyes. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but yeah, Vince or Vincent Price just plays a very evil character in this one. Like he's basically a mad scientist without the science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's all I got. You got anything else on this one, Bill? I, I want to keep it vague. People who haven't seen it, please go watch it. I agree. Yeah, because I'm with you. It's my favorite of those Poe adaptations. So some of mine made my honorable mentions, but not. Yeah, I, I just I, I basically had to put my uh, thumb into the one that I thought the most. and I stuck <laughs> it highest. Yep. Makes sense. OK, so my number my number three is one that I sat and watched last night and I did it in the dark on purpose. Uh, my wife was upstairs reading. My daughter was in bed. After I had done my research on Vincent Price, I decided to throw this on. And that is one of my, probably in my top 30 all-time films, House on Haunted Hill, 1959. And for those of you unfamiliar with House on Haunted Hill, the basic description is, a millionaire offers $10,000 to five people who agree to be locked in a large, spooky, rented house overnight with him and his wife. Again, a William Castle film. But I think of all the William Castle films, this one might be his most understated mm -hmm. in terms of schlockiness. Yes. But you can definitely see William Castle in this. What happens is Vincent Price has this large house and he has money coming out of his ears and he invites random people to his house and says, if you survive the entire night, you're going to get your money but you have to stay in the house the entire time. So he picks various people for various reasons. I won't get into that. I'll let you discover that. But they're all there, and it becomes a, an early survival film, essentially, like a Ten Little Indians. Who's going to die? Who's going to be the one that's killing? How are they dying? You get a bit of paranoia. There's definitely comedy involved, but it's not a comedy a dark comedy, I would say, Mora. The acting isn't exactly, you know, super standout. It's more the atmosphere that's created. It's in a dark, stormy night. It really benefits from the fact that it's a black and white film in this house where there's a storm that comes and they have to lock the house down, whether you want to leave or not. You're stuck there. And one of the guests who's there has been there before. He knows the history of the house. He knows why. It's so spooky and why the shenanigans have gone on there for so long. And there's a few plot twists along the way, multiple red herrings. It's basically a game of clue 
with skeletons and scary, spooky sounds. I, I really, really love this film. This is a film that if you're trying to get somebody into horror who doesn't want to jump into Friday the 13th or The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw, show them House on Haunted Hill. It's really, really, you're not going to regret this. I don't know what you thought about this, Trey. So, Bill, I will talk about this one a little later, but I will say, yeah, like you said, William Castle film, but very understated. And there was another gimmick with this one. Are you familiar with the gimmick that went on in the theaters with this film? I only know the gimmick of when they were speaking at the beginning with the where the guy's face was floating. If it was in the theaters, was that originally a 3D gimmick or not? I don't know that for sure. The only one I know, Bill, was in select theaters. They had kind of a skeleton pulled on a pulley across the crowd. Oh, did they? That would have been cool in the dark. Yeah. And that kind of harkens back to, what is that, popcorn, where there's like, I think, a mosquito that goes through the crowd. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. I haven't seen it yet. It's one that Nathan is going to make me watch for an upcoming uh, (laughs) Phantom Galaxy. Because it's, again, it's one of those ones where you've seen the box forever, but you've never watched. That's that for me. Yeah, but I would have I would have killed to be in some of that those situations to see to be in a theater where that kind of cool stuff is going on. Can you imagine if you're like a nervous movie watcher and all of a sudden this thing whips down the side of the theater? <laughs> <laughs> or a motor goes off but under your chair like my gosh, man. You say what you will about Castle, but he was a he was a very theatrical guy who knew how to sell his movies. So you got your money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, so what do you have for number three there, Mr. Whetstone? So my number three was something that was introduced to me several years ago by our buddy Dave, Dr. Schockbecker. Okay. And it is from 1971, directed by Robert uh, Feist, I don't know. (laughs) And that is the abominable, abominable Dr. Fives. That is my number two. See, Bill, I thought I had a decent... Uh, handle on what maybe your top movies were, but I didn't know in what order they were going to come yep, in. So, yep, yep, yep. yeah. So I'll I'll set this one on, up a little bit, and we can talk about it. Okay. Famous organist Anton Fibes is horribly disfigured in an automobile accident while rushing to the side of his sick wife, and presumed to be dead. Once Fibes learns that his wife died on the operating table, he is convinced the doctors are responsible and begins exacting his revenge on all those involved. Dr. Fives. Now, my favorite thing I have to say about this is, or my favorite thing about this movie, are the the inclusion of the biblical plagues and how they're incorporated in these, in his search for revenge and in these deaths and murders he's causing. And... This is one of those films where there are police officers and they are completely baffled and have no idea how to stop this guy. And it's just a joy kind of seeing scene to scene how he kind of dispatches of these people as it goes along. I'll kick it over to you, Bill, and let you talk about what you want to in this film. Well, oh, this is one of those films I saw as, you know, a teenager and you just keep watching. It's a go to. It's a comfort film for me. I like the fact that it's, you know, you get to see how all these various people die. The fact that I went to Catholic school and I teach in Catholic school, the religious element of death I find interesting as well. I mean, with the plagues and the the insects and the various ways and the machinations of how people go down. And honestly, as you watch, you want to see how the people go down because you know they're going down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you just want to know how and if you're familiar with the biblical end of it, how is this going to occur in a modern setting? So it's, it's really interesting. And 
I like the openings, you know, it's a strong opening with price in the costume playing the organ. Uh huh. You're like, what the heck is going on? You know, like, is, is he the invisible man? Is he a little bit of house of whack? Like what's going on here? But it really, this movie's a love story. That's, that's what this is about. This is about a man's undying love for his wife and he'll go to any means to exact revenge and to try to make things whole. Yeah, it's how he's dealing with his grief, pretty much. Yeah, like, do you want to add anything as to maybe what a favorite kill was or what it is that kind of drew you in as a viewer? Yeah, so I think it might, and like you said, it starts pretty crazy, right? And you kind of have no idea what's going on with these deaths. I really like the one in the in a hospital where it's kind of set up to be this impenetrable place and Fibes um, circumvents that. And then that ending one, as well is worth the price of admission, that whole scene and how that's set up. And from the part where a certain character shows up at that final confrontation until the end of the movie, I was just engrossed. And that's just great. (laughs) A great part of the film there. It reminded me of those games that you used to have for a quarter and you saw the marble go down. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a, it's a great movie, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen Dr. Fives, but go into it knowing it's a little bit silly. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's one of those movies where there's not really a basis of reality to this. It's it's one of those, it's out there, it's abstract, but at the same time, a lot of fun. And you can tell Vincent Price was having a ball doing this. Yes. So absolutely can't recommend that one highly enough because that's that might be one that people haven't seen of his better films, I think. Yeah, this one, again, it's one of those ones that a buddy will tell you whose older brother had seen it and you watch it and you understand why. And I mean, the film is... 50 years old. Yeah. 51 years old. And, and you know what, again, as I've said multiple times, this could be redone. I don't want this redone. I don't want this redone, but the concept behind it could be. Yeah. It's it's a timeless thing. I love, I mean, in in essence, it's saw isn't that far off or seven or seven. I mean, saw the guy's doing it because medical thing went wrong and he's doing it all. It's the same, you know, seven, same thing. From I mean, the biblical is, aspect of like the seven deadly sins and that. Yeah. This is the OG of that genre. Yep. So what do you got as number two, Mr. Whetstone? So my number two has been mentioned and it's house of wax from 53. I don't know how much more I have to say about this one. It's just one of those early price films that I know I saw and fell in love with it. Like you said, a very dark film and very visually appealing. And have you seen, Bill, have you seen the Mystery of the Wax Museum, the original um, from 33, I believe? I think I have, but it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, I think that those two films aren't too far apart, except they kind of shift some characters around and we get price or we get, you know, much more gruesome scenes when he opens the museum back up and we get a little bit more of gruesomeness, I think, in the movie in general. I think this is the superior of all the House of Wax movies. And really, that's about all I got to say. I don't know how much more there is to say about this one that we haven't already talked about. So, No, I, as I said, the scene where they're melting, mm-hmm. it, it's going to stick with you. Yeah. Not necessarily because it scares you, but just because you got to realize it's 1953. There are filmmakers out there now that couldn't pull that off. No. And, nope. and so watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. Alrighty, so time for the ninth time for the Neil, Neil, <laughs> Neil Peart drum solo. <laughs> <laughs> Number one for me, 
and might be for you, is 1973's Theater of Blood. Theater of Blood, I absolutely adore. I adore this film. I can watch this film day and night, any day of the week. Again, it's one that I've seen multiple, multiple times. I just reviewed it with Greg Bozzelli and the crew over at Monsters in the Mosh Pit. It'll be coming out tomorrow. Well, I guess it's already out by the time this comes out. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, the basic synopsis on IMDb is a Shakespearean actor takes poetic revenge on the critics who denied him recognition. What happens is Vincent Price plays an actor called Sir Edward Lionheart. Or not even Sir. It's Edward Lionheart. And he's been on the London stage for years doing nothing but Shakespeare plays. And he does all of them pretty much. And he gets bashed time after time after time by the critics. He doesn't feel that he's getting the recognition that he deserves. And Vincent Price keeps note of all these and he keeps the clippings and he knows what people have said. Now they have this local theater guild where the critics get together and they give away awards each year for the best performance, the best stage actor, the best female performance. And Vincent Price has been overlooked yet again by what he deems to be an inferior actor. And he feels jilted. He's ticked off. So being the dramatic man that he is, he decides to crash the party of the of people that make the votes, the eight critics. And he goes into the condo apartment, gives off a big speech and jumps and commits suicide off the end of the balcony. And so he's assumed dead. Or is he? <laughs> and so Vincent Price comes back and uses all of his acting skills and the plays of William Shakespeare in his last go round as an actor, he uses their deaths in each of those plays to kill off each of the critics one by one by one by one. And they're done in brilliant fashion. The, we talked about the costumes and like the masquerade death, etc. These are the more modern costumes for Vincent Price. One, he flips to Shakespearean, but on the other hand, he gets into 1970s. You see him at one point with like an afro. <laughs> and the cast of this film, let me go over some of them. You got Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg from The Avengers. Diana Rigg, who you just saw in Last Night in Soho. Diana Rigg from A Game of Thrones, who unfortunately she just passed. Yeah. You got Ian Hendry. You got Jack Hawkins. You got Coral Brown, who he ended up having an affair with, ruined his marriage, and married her as a result of this. You got Robert Morley, who's been in a lot. You've got Milo O'Shea. Like, you've got the whole cast of characters. Arthur Lowe. If you want to look them up, they're all character British actors. The film is, I consider, an allegory to Vincent Price's life. Because I think Vincent Price, after the longest time, feels he had also been jilted by critics. He's kind of been pigeonholed as this career schlock hack who's doing blood movies or horror thrillers that are cheap as opposed to doing something that's more, you know, outstanding. And I think he, he has admitted and said this was his favorite film that he ever worked on. He got to recite Shakespeare. Every time that he killed somebody, he had Shakespeare plays 
coming out dialogue exposition. He has this crew of homeless people that are his henchmen and they hang out in an abandoned theater and they are his audience, but they're also his worker bees. And Diana Rigg, let's just say, plays a part. I'm not going to say what. Absolutely brilliant. I love this film. It's probably in my top 20 all-time films. Absolutely brilliant. I don't know what you think of this film. Yeah, so Bill, I think I'm due for a rewatch on this one. It has been years and years. Now, this one just missed my list, probably because I haven't seen it in such a long time, really. But I do remember loving that aspect about having his gang hanging out at the theater and him kind of do. And that's this one's kind of similar to um, a Dr. Fives kind of feel, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's literally like two years later. Yeah. And, and, the, and the amount of things that are similar are striking. Yeah. So long story short, I need to rewatch this one and then maybe reevaluate. So who knows? This one could climb up into my list, but right now it's sitting just outside. Just a bit outside. Just a bit outside. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you got? Number one, Mr. Whetstone. So my number one, you've already talked about, and that is House on Haunted Hill. Ooh. Again, I'm pretty sure that's my first Vincent Price film that I saw. And the way that one plays out is it's like you said, it's just the atmosphere and the the tension and all that. It kind of has the vibe of Robert Wise's The Haunting a little bit. I feel like they're very similar in their atmosphere and maybe not similar in content (laughs) as we go on through. But I just love House on Haunted Hill. I think Price does an outstanding job and like the back and forth with his wife. Um, it's just incredible, and I like the kind of twist and turns we go on along the way. That is my number one. And the thing with that film is, no matter how many times you see it, you kind of forget what's happening at the end. You get, yeah. you get caught up. In the, you get caught up in the moment. <laughs> yeah. No, I absolutely did this last time. I completely forgot forgot the ending, and it's funny that the uh, and I forgot the way it goes too, Bill, and because. There was a remake of this one, and that one kind of took it in a completely different direction. I don't know if you've seen the the 99 I version. I did, but I, I haven't seen it probably since 2000. Yeah, same here. I haven't seen it in a long time. Not up to the same level, let's just say. No, but... it, it, it took it into a different level, but it, I, I remember it being fun. Yeah, I like it a lot. My memory of that and things like 13 Ghost and those kind of films at that time. I kind of liked them, but um, that's that's neither here nor there. That's for another day. But yep, Th- that's for another remake episode for you. Exactly, that'll be down the line. I <laughs> think I was talking to Brian Scott about that, and I'm like, ah, I'll get to I'll get to that down the line. <laughs> Bring Brian Scott, do that one in the fly, and he'll be like a pig in crap. You know? Yeah. Well, I just talked about the fly, kind of by myself on the solo. I just put out oh, yeah. one the past episode where it's just released. Um, when we're recording this. Okay, you know what you can do with him? Do that one and Rabid. Rabid? Yeah, okay. I haven't seen Rabid, the Rabid remake. Are you talking about the remake? Yeah, the Saskas. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, so that would be okay, good. Okay, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Just set up your next episode. There you go. Yep. But either way, we'll. Uh, I'm absolutely thinking of having Brian on at some point. So, I, And I, I know you're listening, Brian, so bug him. <laughs> no, Brian's the opposite. Brian doesn't. I've, I've been bugging Brian, and Brian's like, you know what? He, I think he thinks, uh, you know, podcasters like yourself and, and Nathan and Jay are uh, somewhat on a higher standing than him. And I'm trying to tell Brian, like, no, man, you're a smart dude. Like, I'd love to talk to you whenever. So, oh, Brian, you're great. You're absolutely awesome. Come on down. Yep. So, so I think at this point, you should probably talk about any movies that just missed your list. 
Yeah, do you want to go first, Bill, or do you want me to go first? You can go first. We already know what the first one is. Yeah, it's Theater of Blood. So I didn't, I don't think I have these necessarily in order after we get number 10, but Theater of Blood is right there. The Tomb of Legia. Yep. Last Man on Earth. I would say Tales of Terror. And then one I wasn't too familiar with, but the Monster Club as well. Oh, that's the kid one. I would yeah. say that, that's, that's inappropriate to say. Uh, meant for a younger <laughs> audience. Yeah, it's much uh, much more of like a upbeat comedy type anthology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, a, a nice, what I like to call a gateway horror. Yes, and a nice change of pace when I was in the middle of like my Vincent Price watches. Yeah. So, so on my others, I had my first one off the bench was The Tingler. Mm-hmm. And I also had two Malaysia. Best yep. Shades. Best Shades oh, he ever yeah. wore was <laughs> fantastic. Um, I also had the, the, the Pit and the Pendulum. Uh-huh. Um, with Barbara Steele. With Barbara Steele, yeah. Fantastic film. I had Dr. Fibes Rides Again. Mm-hmm. Not quite as good as the first one, but still a decent watch. I had Scream and Scream Again. Mm-hmm. Talk about using a vat of acid, that one as well. And the other one I had on that was 75. Five, maybe a year after Theater of Blood was Madhouse. Oh, yeah. Yep. With Peter Cushing, where they're in a theater and things yep. go awry. Yeah. And he's an actor in that one, too, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I don't think it's quite up to the standards of Theater of Blood, but it's not a bad watch. Yeah. Now, so I, I was going to oh, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I have oh, some that are non horror. That that's I where I was going to go. So you okay. go right ahead. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. The one Western that he did that I really liked was more dead than alive. Have you seen that one? I haven't. He plays a, someone who owns like a traveling shooting show, you know, in the a wild Western show and the, the main actor, I forget who it is. Um, but he's a big guy is a former, he'd been in jail. He had shot guys down. He got out of jail. He's trying to go straight and narrow Vincent Price actually bought the gun that he had used to nail some of the guys and lures him back into the trade, so we say. And things don't always end mm, quite as pretty. (laughs) There's an adventure film I saw years ago called Master of the World. And I think it has Charles Bronson in it as well, where he's on like a Zeppelin and and he's flying around in the air. That's not a bad film. I got to revisit that one. I just didn't get time to watch it. A couple that, of his film noirs that I liked is I saw Laura. Mm-hmm. I watched Laura. I think it's 44, uh, 1944 for Laura. Uh, he plays a secondary character, but he plays an important character of this woman that it's got, it has died and or died, has gone, disappeared, gone missing. And um, Vincent Price is one of the secondary characters that holds a key to knowing how it all went down. So it's a really good one. If anybody, you're not a horror person, but you like a crimes, crime or film noir or dark or whodunits with a little bit of, you really don't know what's going to happen literally till the end. That Laura is a good film. Uh, the other one is shock that he did. In, I can't remember what year he did shock, but it was in the late forties, I believe. And uh, he's a doctor who's a psychiatrist and a woman sees him kill his wife from an adjacent apartment building. So it's got a bit of a rear window aspect to it. And she goes into a, her body goes into shock after witnessing this and he's the attending doctor. So Very worth good. watching. Yeah. I don't know if you've, seen, if you've seen any of the film noir 
ones. I haven't, and I need to see Laura at some point. Um, I was debating on doing it for this episode, and then I, I don't. Does Vincent Price star in that, or is he kind of a? He's uh, for Laura. He's he's a secondary character, but he's not okay. a throwaway character. Okay, like, like there's the two leads, and he might be third. Okay, no, that makes. And I haven't seen a ton of non horror films that he's been in. Um, like I said, Dragon Wick from earlier. I really enjoyed. He was also did some voice work in the great mouse detective. I remember. Yes. Yes. He um, did. It's been, Oh gosh, decades since I've seen that one since I was younger, but he's in that. And we'd be remiss to not mention that he does have a role in Edward Scissorhands, which we kind of talked about. A little yeah. Bit. Like if you go, if you look him up, he's, you know, like there's lots that he did that wasn't horror. Yes. But th- those are the ones that get the headlines. Yeah. And I think particularly once the seventies hit, he kind of just did stuff that he wanted. Yeah. He'd made his bank. Yep. So he, he, like he did some stuff. I remember he did some stuff with Alice Cooper because it fit in. He, he did like some TV movies and some music videos and things. Uh, as I said, the Brady Bunch variety hour. And it looks like he did a short in 1977 called Les Gens du Québec. He was a narrator. For a French Canadian short film, <laughs> <laughs> you know? but he did. But he was in apparently that movie Bustin' Loose. Oh, really? But his scenes were deleted. Oh, I guess. <laughs> so that's <laughs> unfortunate. He still got paid for it, I'm sure. So, <laughs> but uh, like he just did what he wanted to do, which I enjoy about him. Yeah, you can't blame him for that. I mean, he paid his dues. Just let him do what he wants to do for the for the remainder. Exactly. You know, like it looks here like he did the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo, which we've yep. talked about. But then like right till the very end, 1993, he did a voiceover in a film called The Thief and the Cobbler. I, I don't know the film. I don't either, but I've saw I saw that when I was looking it up. So I'm sure some children somewhere have seen that film. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, Bill, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about on price um, before we go into some I'd put out on both Facebook and Twitter asking for some of our, the group and anyone on Twitter to kind of share their favorite Vincent Price roles. So do you have anything else before we want to get into that? Well, the last thing I wanted to say was, I didn't realize in 1959, he was nominated for a Grammy award for working voice work on an album called Great American Speeches. Huh. So he obviously narrated, I don't know, whatever speech he did. And uh, last takeaway in 1996, ZZ Top had an album, Rhythm Teen, that had a song called Vincent Price Blues. That's fitting. And that, I did not know that. Nope. No, I, I, I didn't either. I looked it up. I think it was on Wikipedia. I'll give them all the credit. They had it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Just in closing, like Vincent Price is or was an awesome actor. So iconic and just so great in all of his roles. Like we've we've talked about, you know, I don't want to belabor the same points here, but if you... And I think it was good. I think about half of our list didn't have crossovers. So I think we were about five and five split. Yeah, I think we gave though. about 15 different films. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't seen um, some of these films we talked about today, just check them out. Search them out. Most of them aren't hard to find as far as they've been into the public domain or they're on Tubi or they're on Prime Video. So, yeah, just give them a shot if you haven't really gotten deep into Vincent Price. Yeah, if you want something fun, look up the, the Brady Bunch episode. <laughs> yep all right let's go like i said i had put out something asking for some favorites from the audience and to share those on the show while we wrap up here um so over on the facebook group 
we had Zach Baker, who had listed The Abominable Dr. Fibes, House on Haunted Hill, um, Tales of Terror, and Last Man on Earth. Good list. All good ones. Yep. Terry Vance said House on Haunted Hill is his favorite. So can't that's a good di- one. Can't disagree. Nope. Uh, Dan Johnson says Dr. Fibes is my favorite, but recently watched Witchfinder General for the first time, and it may be my new fave. He's very scary in that one. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, he's, not a, he's not a likable man. No. <laughs> and, and by the way, I think that one had the longest set of hair for him. Yeah. Yes. It, it, was, it was very much 1968 with the hair. Yeah, absolutely. Our buddy Brian Scott said, can't wait for the episode. Of course, I love House on Haunted Hill, but I liked him early on in The Invisible Man Returns. Um, I didn't get to that one, but I... I think it was out there on YouTube. Um, it is just... on YouTube. But if I recall, I don't know if you actually see Vincent Price. You hear his voice. Probably not, because I know he's in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but it's just his voice. Although, I mean, Brian, you may may prove me wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah which which know, has Brian. happened many a time. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Becker says House on Haunted Hill all the way. But he also loved the Abominable Dr. Fives and Tomb of Ligia. Oh, Tumalagia is a good one. If you guys haven't yes. seen it, and, and not only is it a good story, like it's shot well. It's one of the Poe ones that are really well done that's kind of under the radar. Absolutely. And then, talked about him before, Greg Bazzelli said, I have a new one thanks to Bill Van Vegel. It is Theater of Blood. Yes, yes. Dig into Theater of Blood. You're going to have a blast with it. Just an yep. absolute blast. Uh, so let's go over to Twitter, and then we can... We're going to close this thing out. So we had the Phantom Galaxy account, which I'm assuming is Nathan over there. Bill, I'm not assuming you're not over there. Well, no, sometimes me... I sometimes I can be Phantom Galaxy, but I tend to just be myself. <laughs> I just meant for the purpose of this one. You're probably not over there giving your list. <laughs> um, but I'm assuming that's Nathan says uh, his faves are the Tingler, Matthew Hopkins, and the Mask of Red Death. Props to Tune on Horror standouts Laura and then the Late in Life Whales of August alongside Betty Davis. Lillian Gish and Ann Southern. Leave it to Nathan to dig deep to someone that <laughs> we haven't seen at all. Thanks, <laughs> Nathan, making me look stupid. Thank you. Yep. Let's see. We had uh, the Lone Coyote, who is at X Guns Blazing X, said uh, Museum of Wax is my absolute favorite. The makeup was advanced for its time, followed by House on Haunted Hill and Pit in the Pendulum. Yep. It's a good uh, list there. And what's cool about Pit in the Pendulum is the scene where the actual pendulum is swinging back and forth with the blade yeah it's always yeah. the best scene which i know that um stuart gordon did a version of it as well it's been done a few times yes but whenever has. the scene is where there's the guy on the table and you know you can feel the incision of oh great scene. yeah yep that is a classic scene <laughs> the amateur destroyer said just to throw a random fun one out i really enjoyed his character in the monster club and that i watched because of amateur destroyer and Jessica is from the the horror cast over there, so check them out if you haven't. But that's the whole reason I watched The Monster Club, and I had a good time with it. I could have done without the musical numbers, but... <laughs> did, did it not just kind of feel like a bigger thriller video? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but I thought it was fun. It but was again, fun. It, it's, it's a fun one. It's a gateway one. It's one you can throw in the background if you're, you know, ironing or doing laundry, whatever. I mean, yep. it's, it's an easy kind of watch. Yep. Jiggy's Horror Corner said, Among my favorites include Theater of Blood... House on Haunted Hill, The Last Man on Earth, The Bat, The Pit and the Pendulum, and The Oblong Box. A simply fantastic actor and one of my favorites. Agreed with those ones. And I like yeah. to mention The Oblong Box in there. I like the fact that they mentioned Theater of Blood first. Way to go. Y- yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
have David Fear over here that said, if we're strictly counting movies he's appeared in, Edward Scissorhands is my favorite, which I can't doubt you there. Maybe not the most price role, but that's a really good film. Oh, it's a great film. But yeah, his his role was minor. Uh, Victor H. Rodriguez. Hey, Victor. How are you, buddy? How's the high house doing? Uh, this is a very Victor pick, I think. Um, an Evening of Edgar Allan Poe from 1970. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. Apparently, I don't know. Was it a made-for-TV special? Was it a movie? I think it was, was it a, a TV special. Victor will have to correct us on that. but yeah. I'm sure he's got it on some collection. Yeah. Victor, call in to Land of the Creeps and let us know. Expound on this more for you, will you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's see. We had uh, Real Talk movie podcast. Love those guys over there. Oh, they're, they're brilliant, those guys. I chat, I just chatted with them the other day. Good guys. Yep. But said this is super obvious, but love ha House on Haunted Hill. And then Nathan had to chime in and said he's so much fun in that. And I even appreciate uh, Jeffrey Rush's impression in the remake. Even if Rush is channeling a better price later in the first Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he did have the the uh, the mustache down pat. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of goes to what we were talking about with the remake there. And then finally, we have our buddy Ian Urza. Oh, who, Ian. Yep. And Ian says, Last Man on Earth, House on Haunted Hill, House of Wax are his absolute favorite, is his absolute favorite. So. Yeah, I can't, I can't disagree. I mean, everybody has different tastes and such, but all of the films except for maybe Witchfinder General, are fun. Yeah, I would say so. That's the only one, like I said, that's the only one I didn't want to rewatch because I've seen it a couple times, and that's probably enough for me for a while. Yeah, I don't know if you'd consider The Masquerade Death fun, but it's a good one. It's a pretty good. I didn't feel the kind of dread that I felt with Witchfinder General during that one. So That makes me want to go watch The Wicker Man. I just want to see The Burning. I have been wanting to watch The Wicker Man for months, Bill, and I just haven't had a chance with everything else I've been watching. That's, that's one of those films that isn't easy to find. No, I've got a DVD of it. Okay. From a while back. It's a pretty older DVD, but yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I want to thank everybody for giving their feedback and I want to thank most of all Bill for being on this episode and coming up with this idea. So, Bill, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you and tell us what your plugs are? I have, I'm one of these people have microphone will travel. So you can find me in various pods all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> the main one you can, the main two you can find me at are Land of the Creeps and at Phantom Galaxy. Land of the Creeps with my good buddy, Greg Morgan, Greg Mortis and Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, both brilliant. We go deep diving into thematic episodes and sometimes we just do movies that we haven't seen before. So they're like random picks. And for Phantom Galaxy, we do horror, sci-fi, fantasy, anime, action, documentary, music, as as Nathan likes to say, we're the Russian nesting dolls of uh, podcasts. So there's uh, all kinds of different things going on. Both For both of them, go to our uh, group pages, come check us out, uh, Google us, we're on all the major players. I, this is an absolute blast, Trey. Thank you very much for having me on. The next one will be the movies of Jess Franco. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Please don't. Um, <laughs> no, I want to say uh, I've been over on Phantom Galaxy. You guys were gracious enough to have me over there, and I love being there. So I'm, I would definitely guest on that show any time. But I know I've been loving the new reviews that you guys have been doing, you and Nathan. I was just checking out your most recent one, which by the time this comes out, who knows? You might have another one out. And then, oh, on Land of the Creeps, you just did a cannibal episode. Yeah. 
So, and, and, and the next one coming up, depending on when this is out, is on the films of Roger Corman. Yep. So a little overlap there. A little bit of overlap. So everything in this, in everything's five degrees of separation, right? Yep. And so, and I mean, everybody here, a lot of the people listening here are horror podcasters themselves. They know exactly what we're talking about. Our listeners know that they pop from one episode to the other. There's always a link. The link is a love of horror. That's essential. Yeah. Yeah. So please, like Bill's saying here, I think, Bill, you always do a good job of saying, get out there and support as many of the horror podcasts as you can. If my show's not necessarily your thing, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be five, six other shows out there that are. So... Uh, like I used to list them all off and it just got longer than oh, my arm. So many. It, there's so many. I did that on my year end episode and I was like, and there were still more that I'm, I'm sure I forgot. So, yeah. and, and, and especially those that are also podcasters that put their two cents in. We really mm-hmm. appreciate that because, yep. you know, everybody's just supporting one. There are no bad guys or good guys. No bad girls or good girls. We're all doing it together. And I mean, there's lots of airspace for people to listen to everybody. So please yeah, absolutely. support Trey, support everybody else, and let's just get listening and have some fun. That's what this is all about. Absolutely, Bill. I love that message. As far as what's coming up for me, I'm starting after this episode, I will be starting in the video nasties and a little bit into film censorship after that. So right now I've got a couple episodes set up. The next episode after you hear this one will be me going into the background and the detail of how the video nasties came about and a little bit of even where they ended up today and how long it took for some of these to get re-released. I won't be going into any movies in particular with the exception of one. So on my last episode, I introduced a segment where I was doing a blind. I will set up a watch list, have someone from the audience pick a number one to 10, and I'll watch whatever number that I haven't seen that they landed on. So I did that on my last episode and Dave Becker picked one for the next episode. So that will be the exception of the movie I will be watching. I will be deep diving into. Uh, But other than that, I'm just going to be giving a general broad overview of the history of the video nasties. Now, after that, I will be joined by Greg Amortis, Greg Morgan, and he's kind of going on a video nasty journey himself. So it kind of lined up and Greg's going to be coming on to talk a little bit video nasty. So that's going to be a lot of fun there in the latter half of April. That one. If I may request one for you to look at, jump into fight for your life, fight for your life. Okay. Fight for your life with William Sanderson, who you will know from Newhart, Larry, Daryl and Daryl. Mm-hmm. he's Larry. Okay. And uh, he plays a different type of character. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out, Bill, since you've recommended it there. I, I didn't uh, say I recommended it. I you said, just it, was said interesting. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. What am I in for? <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. But I'll definitely, I'll check that out just for Alrighty. you, Bill. Okay, but um, let's see. As far as plugs go. You can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I do have a Facebook group for Screaming Through the Ages. And that's a growing community over there, and that's got a lot of great people in it. In fact, while you're over there, go to any of the... If you have a podcast you love, there's probably a Facebook group for it. And a lot of those Facebook groups are a lot of fun, especially Land of the Creeps and Phantom Galaxy and all those. So Real Talk, Father and Son Watch Horror, any of those. If you're into those podcasts, go check out their Facebook groups because that's a fun place to be. I can't wait to hear what some of the new uh, Father and Son when Jackson's back healthy going. I can't either. Yeah, I cannot wait to hear Matt and Jackson get back at it. So 
But yeah, other than that, you can uh, send an email to screaming through the ages at yahoo.com if you so wish. I do have a podcast or a website that hosts all the episodes of the podcast, screaming through the ages.com. Other than that, anything else, Bill, before we kind of head out of here? Nope. All I'll say is no movie is not worth watching. Give them all a watch. If you don't like it, that's fair, but at least make up your own mind and don't let somebody else decide for you. Yep. That's a great message. On that positive note, just keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.